0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Felipe Santos, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm very happy to be talking to Wendy Leinberg from the University of Memphis and Devin Goss from the Amory University about their new book, Breaking the Line, Diversity in Black Greek Letter Organizations, published by Rutledge. Um, Welcome, both of you. We're very happy to have you here with us.
1: Thank you. We're happy to be here with you. Thanks.
0: So to start the interview, I would like to ask each of you if you could tell me a bit about um, your career path and what you're doing right now.
1: Sure. Um, So this is Wendy speaking, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Memphis um, starting this fall. And I'm a recent graduate of the sociology PhD program at the University of Maryland. And
2: my name is Devin, and I am also a new faculty member at Oxford College of Emory University in Atlanta, and I am also a recent graduate um, from the University of Connecticut with a PhD in sociology.
0: Right, that's that's great to see that uh, you know freshly graduated PhDs they they can find they can find very easily uh, these kind of uh, faculty positions. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, before we start with, the, with uh, talking about the book, I would actually like to ask you um, to explain us a bit uh, what are Greek letter organizations, because I have the impression that it's something that is uh, very particular to uh, the American culture or maybe some other national cultures, but uh, many of our readers come from uh, other places. So, if you could help us a bit uh, explaining us what, what these Greek letter organizations are, so we can get afterwards specifically on uh, Black Greek letter organizations?
1: Sure. Um, Devin, do you want to start maybe with talking about Greek letter organizations um, in general? And then I can talk maybe a little bit about Black Greek letter organizations.
2: Sure, sure. So Greek letter organizations are um, kind of a part of most college, I'd say, experiences in the United States, though they're not always present at every college campus and um, typically not at smaller ones. But if it's a bigger university, especially one that's um, a state university. University. They'll probably be there. So at their heart, they're really social clubs. Um, and the idea is for students to network, um, make connections and friends on campus, also do things like a uh, participate in charity work or volunteering. Um, often they have a house on campus and all of the members will stay in that house. Um, they'll have regular meetings. Um, but there's all they've also been associated with a kind of party culture. At in university life, um, so it's not just all about, you know, meeting and volunteering and studying together. Um, they also are, um, are well known to have, you know, big parties. Um, in the United States, they're often associated with binge drinking or some sort of scandals. Um, but I think like Wendy's hinting at, what we typically think about um, as associated with Greek life at college campuses Is most commonly associated with historically white institutions, which are a little bit different than what we studied.
1: Right. So we look specifically at, obviously, Black Greek letter organizations who do have a very different history and kind of mission and reason for existing. Um, so as you might imagine, in the U.S., um, historically white sororities and fraternities were the first type of fraternal organizations to begin on college campuses. Um, but then once... Institutions of higher education started accepting um, Black students, then shortly thereafter, you saw the beginnings of Black Greek letter organizations being formed, um, with the earliest be, the earliest still in existence being started in 1906 at Cornell University, which was Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And these Black Greek letter organizations very much differed in scope and mission, um, being focused on uplifting of the Black race, being very committed to social justice and community uplift. So those are some of the differences. Um, and we can talk, obviously, more about them as we continue to talk about the book as well.
0: And then I was wondering, so how do you come to the idea of not researching just about Black-led organizations, but about something much more specific that is... Uh, the memberships of the membership of non-Blacks in uh, these kind of organizations.
2: So, Wendy, do you want to talk about like kind of your personal
1: history? Sure. Yeah. Um, so as Devin kind of alluded to in talking about these organizations and kind of where they're located, um, I actually for undergrad went to the University of Memphis. So I'm returning there as an assistant professor. Um, but at that time, there were Um, both white, historically white Greek letter organizations, as well as historically black Greek letter organizations. And if you're on a college campus um, with fraternities and sororities, those would typically be the ones present. Although now you see, especially on the West Coast and even East Coast, more Latino um, Greek letter organizations, as well as Asian American um, Greek letter organizations as well. Um, But those weren't present on my campus. And I really experienced a racial divide on my college campus, which many of the respondents we talked to also echoed. So a racial divide in the sense of things seem very white or black or, you know, white or non-white. And if you weren't, you know, white and you weren't black, you were still falling into kind of one side of that racial divide. Um, And so I ended up pledging Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated um, at the University of Memphis. And it was really through some of my personal experiences with the college campus um, racial climate, as well as my experiences in my sorority that kind of led me to wonder, you know, how common are non Black members of historically Black Greek letter organizations? And then, as I went through my PhD program, I really became interested in what does this tell us about race more broadly, racial boundaries more broadly, and racial the process of racial identity more broadly as well.
0: And then, before we we get into uh, the, the like. Thick part of the of the book. I was also uh, wondering if you could tell us a bit about the uh, historical context. So you are making the first chapter a, a very good introduction about the history of uh, these black Greek letter organizations, and you also make reference to the first non black people joining them. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah, sure. So historic. I mean, it's interesting because um, most people haven't, other than especially most. Um, white individuals or people who aren't Black might not have heard that much about Black Greek letter organizations. They might not be that familiar with them. Um, But when you kind of dig into the history, you find that they play a very central role in a lot of African-American history in the United States. Um, So as Wendy talked about earlier, we began to see the first black Greek letter organizations being formed in the early 1900s, mostly as a response to racial exclusion. So um, black individuals at colleges like Cornell um, weren't able to join white fraternities or sororities. um, So they started forming their own. And like I said, these organizations have really played a pretty pivotal role in a lot of um, African American history and uplift really since their founding. So a lot of very influential um, individuals were members of these organizations. Um, They played roles in the civil rights movement, in the Harlem Renaissance, um, kind of every important hallmark since their founding. Um, So they really are a central piece of African-American community uplift. Um, but they haven't always um, only had Black individuals as members. So Wendy, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, yeah. So, I mean, even though we, you know, think about Black Greek letter organizations as being kind of like these exclusively um, Black organizations and obviously committed to um Black social uplift and being led by Black leadership, um, there have been instances of non-Black members, particularly white members, um, since the early 1940s. And so you can think about, um, we kind of introduced the book's Um, with these examples of non-white members and their crossing the color line. So again, as early as the 1940s, um, you see kind of attention being given to specifically to white men who have joined these organizations as this very kind of like stark example of crossing this racial, um, racial boundary. Um, So starting at least with the documented instances of kind of crossing this color line into Black Greek letter organizations in the 1940s, but then you see it continuing throughout, you know, obviously up until present day. Um, But still little attention has been given, um, particularly to Asian members or Latino members of Black Greek letter organizations. And that's kind of where um, we wanted to focus. So not just only on the white members, um, but also Asians and Latinos and kind of what are their experiences, both the similarities and differences and the motivations for why they wanted to to join these organizations.
0: And then keeping with uh, with the motivation, so what are the uh, reasons that you explain in the book that lead uh, non-Blacks to join these kind of organizations?
2: Yeah, so one of the major things that um, we found and others have documented as well is uh, a reason that White members or um, Asian or Latino members might sort of feel a commonality and decide to join a Black Greek letter organization. It's most often that they have some sort of um, connection, friendship with a member. So, um, you know, a lot of people don't know about these organizations. So it's really essential that they have someone to introduce them to the organization. Um, And maybe it's just somebody that they respected on campus. They might not have even necessarily known them. Some of our respondents talked about just seeing a group across campus who was really involved in charity work and they wanted to do that. So they didn't even necessarily think about it as a racialized group. Um but some people specifically joined because it was associated with blackness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just to dive into that a little bit more, um so again, most people um, kind of have very limited understanding of sorority and fraternity life in general, and then even less of an understanding or even awareness of Black Greek letter organizations. So among the folks that we interviewed um, for the book, only about 20% had any awareness that you know Black Greek letter organizations even existed before they went to college. Um, so the majority of folks were interacting with and kind of coming to this understanding or acknowledgement of Black Greek life once they actually got to their college campuses. And then as Devin said, um, about a quarter of our respondents um, talked about um, having friendships with someone who either was a member or someone who throughout the time in their um, college career, undergrad career, became a member. So it was that personal connection, right? And then another quarter of our respondents um, talked about Um, just really feeling welcomed by existing members. So maybe they came in contact with an existing um, Black Greek letter organization member, you know, um, on the yard or on their college campus or at their university center, and they felt, you know, really welcomed by them. Um, So again, this kind of importance of these personal connections, whether they were kind of um, informal or more formal friendships.
0: And then also... um joining these organizations is not always easy for for non-blacks and you you speak about the resistance that uh, some of them find within the organizations but also within their um their closest circles that are not related to the organizations and they are not uh, related to maybe specific racial identities. so i was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on that
1: sure um so there Respondents, as you might imagine, definitely experience a lot of a varied reception for their membership or even for their interests in these organizations. So, if we think about some of the kind of pushback that. Our members' experience in regards to race, um, we really saw, especially for a lot of the white respondents, when we can start there, um, they received pushback from their family members, right? So saying, you know, why would you do this? Um, you know, you're making life harder for yourself. Why would you want to socialize or be affiliated with these Black Greek letter organizations? So even though for the m- most of our white respondents, they said, you know, oh, their parents were open, you know, to these ideas of diversity or, you know, always told them, you know, treat people, you know, how you want to be treated or kind of had these um, more um, open or seemingly open racial attitudes. Once they actually joined a Black Greek letter organization, um, they found that, you know, they receive kind of severe criticism from family members, especially, but then also some of their white friends as well. So being seen as, you know, not quite white anymore, right? Because they have crossed this racial boundary um, into Blackness. Um, we also saw for both white and Asian um, respondents that they received... Um, some pushback from kind of, you know, again, white friends or peers, or even in certain cases from um, white administrators. Um, so, again, kind of pushing this idea of, for whites and Asians um, that they should be, you know, associated with whiteness, right? So, why would they kind of decide to cross this color line or to associate in this way?
2: We also found that um, even among their own, you know, now brothers and sisters at their fraternity or sorority that they joined, sometimes um, members, especially Black members, weren't that comfortable with the idea of a non-Black person joining. So, um, you know, we have some examples in the book of people getting, you know, pulled aside at conferences or meetings and being told, like, you're not Black, you don't belong in this organization um, by somebody that is in the organization. So it wasn't always just people outside of the organization, sometimes. Sometimes it was even people inside of it that were uncomfortable with the idea of having a non-Black member.
0: Because I would imagine that for for some of these Black members, the fact of having uh, somebody who's non-Black would also be kind of uh, breaking the, the free space that was created within the organization or, or something like that, right?
2: Yeah, that's the exact tension that we really saw um, about having non-Black members present. So, you know, As we talked about earlier, a lot of these Black Greek letter organizations are really set up as a counter space to um, white, especially society and racial exclusion and discrimination more broadly. So, um, you know, historically, they were founded as a way to have a space when black individuals were excluded racially from other organizations but even in contemporary times, um, a lot of times black Greek letter organizations really are set up as almost a safe haven for black individuals on college campuses um, especially at predominantly white institutions and so because of this, sometimes there's a lot of tension about this idea of people from other races, you know, coming into this very intimate area um, of black social life on the college campus and is that going to change things and how many non-black members is too many before you really lose um that black centric culture that these organizations can really create
0: and how does the conception of identity of uh, these non-blacks who join this organization evolves through their involvement in uh in these greek uh, letter organizations
1: yeah so one thing that um people often say about these non-Black members is that like, oh, they think they're Black or oh, they're trying to be Black, right? So that's kind of like a common misconception or even an assumption or joke about um, non-Black members. But actually what we find among our respondents is really a bolstering um, or broadening of their own racial identity. And we see this working in kind of different ways depending upon um, the race of the respondent. So for example, Um, for the Asian and Latino members, and especially um, the Asian members in particular, uh, you saw their um, fraternity and sorority membership as a way of strengthening their own racial group membership or a racial identity. So the Asian American members in particular talked about um, their membership as providing them kind of analytic tools and even a language to understand their own um, racial identity and to understand kind of the broader racial landscape within the U.S. So understanding how they as Asian Americans kind of fit into a racial landscape um of whites and blacks and Latinos as well. And you also saw both Asian and Latino members talking about um, black Greek letter organizations as a way or as an impetus for them exploring their own ethnic heritage more. So as members of black Greek letter organizations, they learned a lot about um, black history, um, but that also led them to be more curious about their own kind of racial and ethnic history um, within the US as well. Um, for our white respondents um, we saw a lot of them really having to grapple with their whiteness um, many of them for the first time and maybe devin you want to speak more about that yeah
2: absolutely so you know for a lot of white individuals they really hadn't considered um, what being white meant before it's easy a lot of times in the united states if you're a white since it's kind of the default as people see it um, you don't have to really investigate what race means to you what your racial identity is, but um, being white members in a Black Greek letter organization, this really forced these white individuals to think about what their racial identity meant, you know, and also what even things like white privilege might mean. So we found a lot of our respondents talked about really reflecting on racial discrimination and racism for the first time. So um, they talk about how if they went by themselves and walked around maybe the streets outside of campus, they were never pulled over by the police or stopped or harassed. But then when they went with their black fraternity brothers, um, they were kind of constantly stopped by the police or ask for id and this really just showed them how different their experiences as a white individual were from um, maybe their experiences of their um, black brothers in their fraternity
0: and something that i found very interesting about the book is that you don't only focus on the organizations as such but you also look at the uh, campus uh, culture and the context it it provides and how it affects that and also to the aftermath so let's start uh discussing about so how how does the campus context influence uh, the racial boundaries that are present and also how they are contested, right? Mm
1: -hmm, Absolutely. I think that was kind of one of the main or major findings of our study as we talked to our respondents. Um, That I found really interesting was that even across the age of our respondents, which we had some respondents who had kind of who were still an undergrad and maybe had just joined their um, sorority of fraternity, as well as members who had been far removed from their undergraduate experience and were now in their, you know, 40s. Right. But still across The age of the respondents, or when they attended college, or even the type of institution they attended, whether it was a small private college or a large public um, institution, they all talked about this very severe racial divide that they experienced at their schools, right? Um, And they often characterized it as this very white black divide. Um, But as we talk to respondents um, more and really, you know, thought about what they said it really came down to this kind of white non-white divide on their college campus so this really refers to how they experienced the interactions on their college campus how they were treated by faculty and administration um, so respondents often talked about how um, their faculty made no distinguish di- made no distinctions excuse me between students of color right so kind of lumping them all together in this non-white um, side of this divide And so this college campus, this racial climate is really what led um, our respondents to seek out uh, membership in Black Greek letter organizations.
2: Yeah, and we specifically really saw that um, be the case for other individuals who, you know, weren't white on campus but weren't Black and really felt like um, because there might not be, you know, Asian American fraternities and sororities or Latino fraternities and sororities. if they weren't white, they weren't going to join a white fraternity or sorority. So that kind of left them with a black fraternity and sorority. So the racial climate really drove their membership in the first place.
0: And then you basically also speak about how joining Black greek Letter organization as a non-Black is something that basically is experience that stays with you basically forever, right? So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about uh, the impact that this organization has on their non-Black members.
2: Yeah, so there actually hasn't been a lot of um, kind of like longitudinal, if you will, research looking at the effect of Black Greek letter organizations on, you know, lifetime skills, career choices, lifetime trajectory. Um, There's quite a bit of research on that for, you know, historically white fraternities and sororities, but not as much um, for Black Greek letter organizations in general, and then nothing for these non-Black members. So that's something we really wanted to, Focus on in thinking about not just how this might have impacted um, the participants' lives right in the moment of joining or while they were a member, but how it might also impact their lives, you know, 15, 20 years down the road. And one thing that we really found was that it really. A lot of our participants talked about how important their membership was in just formulating and and helping them build leadership skills. Um, So maybe, Wendy, you can talk a little bit about how essential leadership and service and all of those things are in these organizations and why that might be um, an outcome.
1: Right. Absolutely. So as we talked about um, earlier, um, Black Greek letter organizations have been pivotal to a lot of the Black community uplift that we've seen um, throughout the decades. And this long legacy of leadership, service and social justice activism is really Inscribed throughout um, these sororities and fraternities. So it's part of their values, their mission, and leadership is part of one part of the cultivation of members that happens um, in these organizations. So for our respondents, a lot of them talked about how. Um, how attracted they were to these organizations because of that historical legacy and because of key individuals that we think about as members of these organizations. So if you think about Martin Luther King Jr. Or Thurgood Marshall or many others, um, respondents talked about having this long legacy and this connection to this long history of leadership and service and really feeling this personal responsibility to continue that legacy today. So as one of the benefits of membership Um, we do see this connection to, but also commitment to leadership and leadership, not only within the organization, but also leadership and service outside of the organization as well. So one of the other kind of long-term benefits we saw um, or long-term impacts was this commitment to community uplift, again, not only through membership in their sorority and fraternity, but also through career choices. So many of our respondents who were you know, outside of undergrad, already graduated, talked about how their career choices were really impacted um, by their by their sorority or fraternity membership. So some people talked about how they specifically chose a career in higher education. Um, some people talked about how even um, in other areas, like you know law or even whatever job that they had, that they thought about how could they incorporate. Um, specifically racial justice, into their careers.
0: And now already moving a bit towards the, the end of the interview, uh, I would also like to, to speak with you about more books than, uh, than that's yours. And I was wondering, which uh, new books have you been reading lately?
2: Sure. So I actually just read something that wasn't exactly, it's not a sociology book per se, but it's called Educated it's a memoir by Tara Westover. And I think even though it's a memoir, it's pretty sociological. Um, So she talks a lot about growing up in a kind of fundamentalist Mormon off the grid family and then going to college later. And, um, kind of catching up on all the things she missed out before and trying to adjust. Um, So I highly recommend that book if you're interested in education, but also just um, kind of growing up and figuring out that things that you were taught maybe aren't necessarily true. I actually found it pretty similar to some of our research that also looks at that transition into college.
1: And something that I've been reading and kind of rereading recently is Ellen Wu's The Color of Success, Asian Americans and the Origins of the Model Minority. Um, and this really charts the history of how this model minority myth um, began. And what I found interesting is, again, thinking like Devin, what you said about these connections um, between some of our research, thinking about in Ellen Wu's book, how she's charting this kind of history of the model minority myth and kind of the the reasons why it began, um, connecting that to some of the things our respondents said about not understanding kind of this history of um, Asian American racialization and also Asian American activism. Um, so I highly recommend this book. Like I said, I'm reading and rereading it. Uh, so I think this is a book that everyone should read, even, you know, regardless of kind of what your interests are.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's uh, the last question for the interview. I was wondering, uh, after finishing this book, what are you... Uh, working on right now?
2: Sure. So I'm actually engaged in a kind of similar um, topic and project to um, what the book is about. Um, So I'm studying white um, students at historically black universities and colleges. So sort of a similar theme, um, but a little bit more specific as I'm only looking at white individuals and specifically um, trying to understand this recent push by historically black universities and colleges to um, not only admit or welcome, but specifically recruit white individuals as a means of getting more students at these historically Black colleges and universities, which sometimes are struggling um, economically, um, numbers-wise, in the modern era.
1: And I'm um, engaged in some research that's different from what the book was about. So now I'm looking at... um, International adoptees, particularly um, Korean international transracial adoptees, and their ideas around citizenship. So currently, there are about um, forty thousand Korean adoptees who are now adults that do not ha- that were adopted to the U.S. but do not actually have U.S. citizenship. So there's this big push around legislation um, to. Retroactively grant U.S. citizenship to these international adoptees. So I'm looking at how um, the activism around um, this piece of legislation, as well as how it's being received um, in the U.S. at this current time.
0: So, yeah, thank you very much for, for this great interview. Um, today, I've been talking to Professor Wendy Leibor from the University of Memphis and Professor Devin Goss from the Oxford College Amherst University about their book just published with Routledge, Breaking the Line, Diversity in, Bla- in Black, Greek Letter Organizations." So, Wendy and Devin, thank you very much for the interview and good luck with everything.
2: Thank you. Thank you.